And though I am not preaching from this passage specifically, the, the central idea of this passage forms also much of the central idea of the message of this morning. Romans chapter 3, 19 to 24. Hear the word of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, that is, God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is God's word this morning. Um, today is the last in a series of five messages in which we have tried to give attention to some of the questions that people have consciously or unconsciously about Christianity. When we encourage people to embrace Christianity, there are these barriers for them. And so, for example, we have asked the question, if your God is so loving, what's with the reality of all the suffering that the world seems filled with? Or the question, isn't the church just full of hypocrites? Or, my life feels pretty good, why should I bother becoming a Christian? These are good questions, and as Christians, we believe that there are good answers. And so we've spent these weeks thinking about these things. This final message today deals with the question that by necessity underlies all of these questions, and that's simply, what is the essence of Christianity anyway? Okay, when people resist Christianity, what is it that they are resisting? When we encourage people to embrace Christianity, what is it that we're trying to win them to? Because okay, some people reject Christianity without knowing what it is they're rejecting. Some just reject it on the basis of the personality of Christians. Okay, many people are misinformed as to what Christianity even is. Gandhi, for example, called himself a Christian because he respected the person and the teachings of Jesus. But he also called himself a Buddhist and a Hindu. So was he a Christian? I heard a, radio, a talk radio host identify the essence of Christianity once as the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, Jesus certainly said that, but is that the heart of Christianity? If it is, then maybe all religions are the same, because many religions have this, this ethical component and call us to be kind and good to one another. But it's simply a mistake to consider the golden rule, the essence of Christianity. Is Christianity a moral code? Is it a philosophy? Is it one valid religion among many? Sometimes even Christians are unclear about what Christianity is, as is evidenced by what we present to people. Religious activity, a means to happiness and a problem-free life, and so on, for many of us, the way that we live reveals a lack of understanding of what Christianity is. So today I want to encapsulate for you the essence of Christianity. No one should leave here this morning with any confusion as to what Christianity is. I want to be as clear as I can. 
And whether you are or are not a Christian today, I trust that this will be helpful to you. And to give you the essence of Christianity, I'm going to use five words. And in your program insert, you'll notice kind of a diagram that I've put there to hopefully help you fit it together. If you want to use that and that's helpful, then great. The diagram is a circle made up of four quadrants. And four of these five words will go in those quadrants. And there's another circle at the center of the first circle. And it represents the fifth word, which lies at the core and without which the other four cannot be understood. Okay? So the five words that capture the very essence of Christianity. The first word is the word law. It is impossible to understand Christianity without first understanding what is expressed when the Bible and centuries of Christians mean when they've spoken about the law. Okay, now it's not difficult to understand that because even in our everyday speech, we understand law. When we use the word law, we understand it in two senses, what you might call rules and reality. So laws are rules like don't speed or rob banks, wear a helmet when you're riding your bike, pay your taxes, and so on. Okay, these are rules. These are laws that we are commanded to live by. But law also means reality, the way that things really are. For example, the law of gravity. If I step off a cliff, the law of gravity says that I will fall downward. No one has legislated, if you step off a cliff, you are supposed to fall down. If you don't fall down, there's a stiff fine. No, it's not a rule. It's law in that it describes how things work, how things really are. Okay, there are other laws of physics and thermodynamics and things that just describe reality. Now, the word law, biblically, has those same two senses, rules and reality. God is a God of perfect character. He is good. Uh, he is concerned with right and wrong. He is moral and has created a moral universe. And what that means is that certain things are objectively right and good, and certain other things are objectively wrong or bad. Okay? And we, as moral creatures, living in a moral universe, we are called to be right and good. Hence, we have the law of God, uh, kind of famously summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, which God gave to his people Israel, and we think by extension to all people. So, worship nothing except God. Honor your parents. Don't slander. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet what someone else has. Okay? These things are rules in that God has legislated that people ought to obey these things. But they are also law in that they reflect reality. Okay? They arise out of God's perfect character, which is the very heartbeat of all that he created. So it's not just beneficial to us and to life and to society to obey these laws. It is objectively right. Okay? It's not just a bad idea to murder someone. It violates the very order of the universe and the character of God. It really is inherently wrong to slander or to lie or to steal. It really is a sin not to set aside a day or so every week just to rest. That's not just a religious practice. Okay? God does not say, have no gods except me, simply because he's making a rule to command our allegiance. 
No, when we relegate God to second place or to the perimeter of our life, we are stepping outside of reality, outside of the way that things really are. We are violating a law, letting something else be God when in reality there is only one God. Now, have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied or lusted? Have you ever relegated God from the center? Have you ever coveted your neighbor's stuff or spouse? Okay, we have all sinned. At some point in our lives, and actually at many points, we have broken the rules and we have violated the law. We've all done something that deviates from that which is perfectly right and good. And so we are all law breakers. If that sounds like an overstatement, this is how the Bible puts it in James chapter 2. For whoever keeps the law but stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now think of it. If somebody robs a bank but does not murder, he is still a criminal. If I park illegally but I don't speed, I've still broken the law. Or think of it by way of analogy. Okay? A white shirt that has only one kind of relatively small spaghetti stain on it, we still call that shirt dirty. A cracked mirror is still considered defective even if the total surface area of the crack is like 1% of the whole mirror. You break a bone in only one place, it's still a broken bone, and so on. And so we are all lawbreakers. And so the Bible is not off the mark when it says what we've just read, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That is, all have violated God's law. You have. I certainly have. And therefore, our objective condition before God is one of guilt. And since God's perfect character includes justice, that means that our guilt demands retribution. Again, not because God simply wants to punish, but because objectively, justice requires it. And back to our twin concepts of rules and reality, that retribution for our sin, then, is both punishment and consequence. Okay? Rob a bank, go to jail. That's punishment. Step off a cliff, go splat. That's consequence. And the punishment and consequence for our sins is hell, which also makes sense objectively, because to violate the infinite perfection of God, his character, necessitates an infinite retribution because our guilt is then infinite. So that's what's expressed in the word law as a foundation to Christianity. Rules and reality. The fact that all of us are lawbreakers. We have all sinned against God. We are all guilty and deserve that God in his justice should rule against us. Okay, that's the necessary starting place for understanding Christianity. Just as you need to understand the ideas of health and sickness before the good news of a cure can make sense to you. And so our second word, then, has to do with the cure, and that's the word grace. Grace really is the defining element of Christianity as a faith system. C.S. Lewis walked into a meeting of the Inklings, which was a group that he used to meet in a pub regularly with to discuss literature and religion and philosophy. Uh, his friend J.R.R. Tolkien was a member of that group. And in this particular meeting, they were discussing what made Christianity unique among the world religions. 
It wasn't the incarnation, for many religions have stories of deities uh, taking on human form. It wasn't the resurrection, because many religions and myths have stories of resurrections. So what is it that is unique to Christianity? And C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. See, every other religion has people working to gain favor of the gods or of God or to earn by their good works oneness with the universe, or however it is that they define the goal of their religion. All religions put the onus on us to make things right. Only Christianity has God taken the initiative to make things right. Grace is the theme of the whole Bible. It underlies the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the idea of the innocent giving its life for the sins of the guilty. And it finds its perfect expression in Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for our sins. And in fact, the earlier sacrifices were really only shadows or pictures, kind of pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. The death of a goat or a sheep has no inherent value in atoning for our sins. But those sacrifices provided the context by which the death of Christ then would be understood. And so at Christmas... The good news that the angel proclaimed was that a savior has been born. That's an astonishing reality that Christ, the son of God, would die for us, would die in our place. 800 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about this coming savior. And he said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, law, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's grace. Grace means that we bring nothing to the table. Okay, There is nothing that made us deserve forgiveness of sins. Sometimes we Christians say things innocently like, God, thank you that you looked at us and decided that we were worth saving. Well, there was nothing in me that was worth saving. The reality is that God loved me and decided to save me even though I wasn't worth saving. As I heard somebody put it once, God doesn't love you because you're valuable. You're valuable because God loves you. That's grace. A couple weeks ago, I was driving down Center Street and driving through a school zone, and I wasn't paying attention, and I slowed down only because the car in front of me had slowed down. Well, a police officer stepped into the street and, of course, waved me over, and he said, you were going just over 50 in a 30-kilometer school zone, and you only slowed down because the car in front of you did. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry, wasn't paying attention. So he asked for my license and my registration, and and in my wallet, kind of when you open opposite my driver's license, is my clergy license, and uh, so he probably saw that. I don't know if that was a factor in what he did or not, but he said, you're going 50 in a 30, that's a $129 fine, so be careful next time, and he walked away. That was mercy. And God is merciful. But what if the policeman had said, you know what, sir, I have no choice here. Uh, The radar camera recorded an infraction. The law says that there's a fine that has to be paid. But I'll tell you what, I'll pay the fine out of my pocket. You're free to go. That moves from mercy to grace. 
And grace is what God has extended to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it this way. God made him, that is Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. Christianity is about the fact that we are lawbreakers and are guilty as such. Okay, that's law. But God did not exact retribution from us, nor did he just let us go in mercy, but he paid the fine when Jesus gave his divine life for us on the cross. That is grace. So those two words, law and grace, well, they're often thought as summarizing the whole of the Christian message, but they don't. Okay, there are a few more essential concepts. And so we go to the next word, which is lordship. Because without an understanding of the idea of lordship, we cannot say that we understand Christianity. The lordship of God is a law. Not like a rule, but it's a law that defines reality. It's not simply that we ought to treat him as Lord, but that he really is Lord. The objective reality of the universe is that God is the creator and the master and the owner of everything. All power ultimately resides in him. The existence of everything that is, is ultimately grounded in him. And that's why the first commandment, to not have any gods before God, is, as I said earlier, not just a rule, but a law. Because if we live our lives in such a way that we do not recognize the lordship of God, we are not living in conformity with reality. And I use the word recognize deliberately, because God is, in fact, everyone's Lord already. It's just a question of whether people choose to live in submission to that lordship or in rebellion against it. I never made God my Lord. I simply acknowledge that he is my Lord and live accordingly. And as to Christ, who is the eternal Son of God and so shares the divine essence, and so we rightly call him God the Son, you remember that the angels proclaim to the shepherds not only that a Savior has been born, but that he is Christ the Lord. And so Christianity is not just about the forgiveness of sin, which if you stopped only after law and grace, you might be tempted to think. It's not just about the forgiveness of sin, but it is a restoration to God's lordship. It's not only repenting and seeking forgiveness for acting against his lordship, but it is choosing to submit again to his lordship. And by the way, ordering our lives under his lordship is a process. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say things like, if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Okay? That's just nonsense. Anyone who's been a committed Christian for any length of time knows that we constantly find ourselves bringing more of our lives and of our beings under his lordship. Okay? Christianity is a journey, a process of ordering our lives more and more under the lordship of God. But the Bible is clear that at the end of it all, this process will be complete for all of creation. For even those who submit his lordship and resist it all of their lives, they will one day acknowledge the lordship of God the Son to the glory of God the Father. 
After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God, the Father that is, exalted him, that is Christ. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is, spiritual beings and all humanity, even those who have died. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we can choose to acknowledge it now. We certainly will acknowledge it later. And so when we invite people to embrace Christianity, we need to be clear that they we need to be clear so that they understand that what we are calling them to is to submit their lives, to surrender to God through Jesus. And not only to walk in the grace of God, but to walk in obedience to him. And so lordship is one of the essential components of Christianity. Now this obedience, this submission is not sheer duty. Okay, it would be sheer duty if this was all about rules, but it's not. This obedience means that we are conforming our lives to the way that things really are. We are living as we were made to live. That's why Jesus said that his yoke was light. That's why the Apostle John said that his commands are not burdensome. Because ultimately to live under the loving lordship of God enriches life. And so our fourth word this morning then is life. Christianity is about life. It's about living fully, living completely. Real life was lost when our parents Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the fruit that God had commanded them not to eat. They disobeyed him, therefore choosing to live outside of his lordship. And God had said, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did. They didn't die physically for many, many years. But on the day that they sinned and stepped outside of the lordship of God, they stepped outside of reality. Outside of real life. And there has been a dissatisfaction in our existence ever since. A sense that, that this is not how life should be. You know, there has to be more to life than this, we cry. We feel like something is missing. We're hungry. And our desire to be free from the lordship of God, we lose all that makes life good and satisfying. Imagine a fish wanting to be free from the confines of the pond and so flopping himself onto the shore. What life and freedom awaits him there? Imagine a game of hockey or a game of Monopoly where you are free from the obligation of the rules. Okay, what, what enjoyment is there in the game? Okay, Christianity is like that. In conforming to the law and ordering ourselves under the lordship of God, there is life. That's why people out there who seem to have everything can be desperately unhappy and empty. And even Christians, who by rights should be the, the most fully alive people on the planet, when we reduce our Christianity to rules and to religion, we lack joy. Because then we're not really living in grace. We're not living in the knowledge that the lordship of God is good and life-giving. Okay, we were made to live under God. The psalm writer King David said this in Psalm 42. 
As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? There is a need in us, a thirst in our souls for God. And when we live without the knowledge of him, or when we live deceiving ourselves about his lordship over us, then our lives are just not right. And we cannot be said to be truly living at all. So Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. So just as law and grace go together, so also lordship and life go together. To live under the lordship of God in Christ is to really live. It's to be fully alive. It's to finally find that which satisfies the deep longing of our heart. Author John Piper writes of people who have given up everything that they have to live fully in service to God, missionaries and such, only to say at the end of the day, I never made a sacrifice. I mean, would you call it a sacrifice if you had to pay $500 to buy a house in Calgary this summer? Is it a sacrifice for a farmer to give up a bushel of grain in the spring in order to reap 50 bushels in the fall? Is it a sacrifice for the athlete to give up those early mornings to stand on the podium and receive the gold medal and hear her national anthem being played? Nor is it a sacrifice to order our lives under God, to submit and to surrender, only to find that we are truly living for the first time. So the invitation to Christianity is a call to surrender to the Lordship of God, but to surrender in the knowledge that this means life. Abundant and full and free, even eternal. So these four words, law, grace, lordship, life. These four words together sum up Christianity. No one word can be missing. If you speak only three words, we cannot be said to truthfully understand what Christianity is. If we don't understand it, how then can we communicate it rightly? Christianity has often been communicated wrongly or incompletely. No wonder then that it is so easily dismissed or rejected. I mean, who wants law with no grace? That's to live in guilt. Who can receive grace without understanding law? You won't appreciate a cure unless you know that you're sick. What is the lordship of God without the knowledge of life? then it simply becomes rules, a burden to be borne. And how can you find life without embracing lordship? Okay, these four words all occur together. And unless they do, you do not have biblical Christianity. But there is one more word, and it's the one that lies in the center of the other four. It's the only context in which Christianity can be not only properly understood, but properly experienced. And that is the word relationship. Because without that word, we could still misunderstand the whole deal. We might think of God's lordship and order our lives under it and find life satisfying. We might confess our failure to live under the law and on that confession receive God's forgiveness and grace. We can do all of those things and God could still be a distant or an abstract God. But that is not how things are. God is personal God is near. He loves, personally and passionately. He loves the world he has made. He loves all people, not just generically and collectively, 
but specifically and individually. That means he loves you. His eye is on you right now. His heart is set on you. The Bible uses all kinds of relational analogies when it describes God's dealings and attitudes towards his people. Parent-child analogies, husband-wife analogies, friendship, even the erotic language of intimate lovers. Because God created us for intimate relationship. And Jesus died to restore us to that relationship. And that relationship is what God invites people to. So Christianity is not primarily about a belief system or an adherence to a set of rules and practices. Christianity is about a dynamic relationship, a personal experiential knowledge of God. So hence we have things like prayer and Bible reading. These are not just religious activities, but the cultivation of relationship. Jesus described eternal life saying, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Even the concept of lordship is relational, kind of like parenting. I am lord to my two boys. There is inherent authority in our home, and I assert it. They need to obey and respond and submit. But it's not purely rules in our home. My lordship is not that of boss, but that of father. My authority is exercised out of love and out of a desire for what I know is best for my boys. And so it is with God. He calls us to live under his lordship, not because he's petty, but because he loves us and he wants what is best for us. And submission to God is always what is best. Okay, please hear and understand this. God will never ever call us to something that is not in our best interests. He may call us to things that are difficult, but not to things that are not in our best interests. He will never do that. He is a father, and we as Christians are children. So the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans, said, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons or children of God. If you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, many people fear God, right? Because God is all about rules. But he's not. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, by that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. And the Apostle John marveled not just at the relationship, but at the depth of love that God has for us. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so the heartbeat of Christianity then is not the worship and obedience of some aloof and powerful deity, but it's the reality of a personal and a present God. A God who can be delighted or grieved. A God who can be honored or offended. A God who can be loved or betrayed. Relationship is the central idea of Christianity. And it's the only context in which Christianity can be properly understood and experienced. And so the essence of Christianity, which has so often been misunderstood by Christians and those who are not Christians, can be captured in these five words. Law, 
we have broken or violated God's law. Grace. God loves us and sent Jesus to die for the forgiveness of our sins. Lordship. God is the Lord and it is right and good, that is, it is appropriate and beneficial to live under his lordship. And then life. Submitting to God's lordship is the only means to fullness of life. And then at the center of it all, relationship. As Christians, God is our father. And we are his children. We are his friends. So in light of this, how does one respond to the message of Christianity? Maybe you're understanding it for the first time only today. You may have gone to church for a long, long time or been a Christian for many years, but only now does it really click. Or maybe you know this morning already that you're not a Christian, but now you understand it for the first time and you want to embrace it. How do you do that? Well, in light of these five words, five simple steps. Admit. Yes, I have broken God's law. I have sinned. I admit my guilt. Then accept Jesus died for my sins, not because he had to, but out of the sheer grace of God. And I believe that Jesus paid my fine, took my punishment. Submit. I choose now to live under the lordship of God. I will live according to that which is right and good. And then receive. I embrace the fullness of life that is mine in Christ now. And then finally, enjoy. Rejoice in the knowledge of God's love for you. Give yourself freely in love to him. And rest in the reality that he is your loving father and you are his child. I've tried to be as clear as possible today. I hope that there's now no confusion as to what is the essence of Christianity. Everything else is just details. But these five words encapsulate what Christianity really is. You know enough now to respond and to give yourself to it. If you choose not to, you now know what you are rejecting and you're accountable for that decision. But I pray that you will embrace Christianity, that you will give your life to God through Jesus and be forgiven and find a life. Respond today if you never have. Admit, accept, submit, receive, and enjoy. And if you want to do that today, then as soon as the service is done, just find me. I will be here somewhere in this room. Come and find me, and we'll talk, and I'll walk you through it if you need help doing that. We're going to close our service today right now by singing the Christmas carol, What Child Is This? And we're going to affirm in this Christmas season that the child in the manger is none other than the one who is our Savior and our Lord. This, this is Christ the King. To come and own him as king this morning, if you've never done that. Let's sing. What child is this? It's in your hymnals, number 180, and we will stand to sing this.